Good morning, everyone. Good to be with you. And uh, happy Advent. Uh, we are in the final lap getting towards Christmas, which is so exciting. Yes. Um, as Suzanne gave her testimony today, which I'm so thankful for, and just the gift of her story and her message and the reading that we heard today from Isaiah, I want to begin with some preamble uh, before we pray and get into what we're going to talk about this morning, which is this, that the prophet Isaiah makes this really clear. In a fallen world, fear flourishes. In a fallen world, fear flourishes. This is kind of like one of the biggest no-duh statements I can make is that fear is everywhere. Um, And there's a reason why the response of Scripture is so evident to dealing not just with fear, but also fear not. Um, Over and over and over again, we're hearing from the Lord through the prophets, through the witness of the testimony of those who follow the Lord to not fear. Here in Isaiah 40, you have this very famous statement of comfort ye my people. And for many of you, you're probably hearing Handel's Messiah kind of swelling up inside of you. Uh, This word of Isaiah 40 begins with a shift in tone. There's a shift of cadence that's happening for the prophet where the Hebraic adah of condemnation that's been in the message, which is all hope is lost. Where is God? What's going on? gets replaced now with ta-da. This is, there's this moment of consolation that starts in Isaiah 11, before what we read, moving through like a big wave building on the ocean and cresting on the shore, that now there is consolation for your suffering and your pain. God is hearing your pain and suffering. But it's not to forget the condemnation. It's not to forget the loss and the disobedience, but to take it seriously and deal with it. And so when we get to Isaiah 42, the prophet reminds us in a very powerful way that we need to hear today for Advent, which is this, that in our deepest darkness, a light is going to shine. And so as we become unveiled in our moments, as we open up to what God has in store for us, we're reminded that these great fear knots of the Bible unveil us. They remove us from what we're hiding behind and show us that in our deepest, darkest hearts, there are parts of us that are still afraid. And we need to hear this comfort. We need to hear this confirmation of God's presence in our lives. Maybe some of you saw this week in the New York Times, uh, this article, why 1,320 therapists are worried about mental health in America right now. Quite a clickbait type of title for a news article. But they surveyed over a 1,000 therapists across the country and found that therapists are overbooked, waiting lists are increasing by the day, anxiety, depression, economic uncertainty, the constant turns of the pandemic, ongoing global um, disruption over and over and over again. We are living in a time of fear and confusion. Moving from Isaiah, we go into first century Judah. And here we meet the story of stories. Mary and Joseph being called for a census under a time of empire, the Roman empire crushing the people, moving them into a place of submission. And here these people move forward to come to the city of David to be counted and be told in no uncertain terms on one side from the Roman empire that you are worthless Yet the Lord of the universe is telling them, do not fear Mary, Luke 1, 30, for God has found favor in you. 
So we have this clash of culture in the room as we come to our teaching today about fear. On one hand, we have the very real life we live when we step out of the sanctuary of brokenness, of pain, of loss, of confusion, of anxiety and despair. And on the other side, we have a God of the universe who wants to tell us to live into a fear not story. So let's lean a little bit together into that today. And before I pray, I want to give you an exercise for our time together. And it's a very simple one. And that with your hand, you can pick a left or right hand, wherever you want to go with. Um, it's very typical. And as a teacher, I'm used to students disassociating during lectures, during things like that. They've got things to do. I totally get that. But as you're sitting there and pondering where the Holy Spirit's meeting you during this time, I'd like you to use this hand as a place to think through what fear are you holding on to right now in your body? in your spirit, in your soul? What are you gripping right now? And, and kind of every once in a while, I'll kind of look at your hand and go, you know, what am I holding on to? What am I gripping? Okay, so I want you to do that as an exercise form. We're gonna come back to that at the end. So be thinking through what that is. So let's pray together. And let me take you through some things I think scripture has to teach us and direct us about fear this morning. Let's pray. Gracious and loving God, thank you for meeting us today. Thank you for challenging us to open our hearts and our minds to to pull back the curtains that darken our fears. Lord, we ask like you asked the prophet to proclaim to the people that a light would shine in our darkness. And so Holy Spirit, meet us in this room, meet us wherever we're at, watching this today, listening to your word today, to unbuckle our hearts, to open our hands, to release the fears that we have, to name them, to see them, to unveil ourselves, Lord, before you so that we could be before you in new and powerful ways. We ask this in your name, Lord. Amen. So in your bulletin and in our lesson today, what I'd like to do is walk you through kind of three basic movements. I'd like to talk first of all about the root of fear, kind of where fear comes from and how scripture identifies it for us. And we're going to go back to Genesis 3 for that. I'm going to talk about responses to fear that we see, particularly in the first century where Jesus is born. What were the types of responses to fear that Mary and Joseph and, and Jesus as an infant were being surrounded by, by the people of the day? And then we're going to look at what are the ways in which we can um, live into the hope of fear, which is the fear of the Lord. And what are some ways that you and I can have what I'm going to call Advent readiness? Uh, how do we get ready for the coming of Jesus that we're going to celebrate this week? So first of all, the root of fear. Let's talk about that for a second. Howard Thurman was a uh, theologian and chaplain, served at Harvard University for a time in the Divinity School, but also at Boston University. And he was a huge influence on Martin Luther King Jr. during his ministry. And his book, the Jesus and the Disinherited um, spends its first chapter on identifying who Jesus is, but the chapter two is just titled Fear. And Thurman's premise is that in order for you to truly see Jesus, we have got to see our fears. You cannot clearly see Jesus unless we start dealing with what we fear. Uh, Thurman puts it this way, fears are of many kinds, fear of objects, fear of people, fear of the future, fear of nature. Uh, fear of the unknown, fear of old age, fear of disease, fear of life itself. Fear is one of the persistent hounds of hell that dog the footsteps of the poor, the dispossessed, and the disinherited. And when I think about what, what Thurman is getting at, 
is he's talking about the fact that fear is kind of everywhere. It's this nagging feeling that we experience. Um, And one way that I kind of picture it for myself is when I used to live in Scotland, I I taught at the University of Glasgow on the west, uh, west coast of Scotland. And living in Scotland, as we did for years, you got used to some of what we call in Glasgow, the patter, uh, the various ways that the Scots would describe things. They had tons of really interesting words for weather. Um, And one of the words that I loved was the har, the har. The har is this fog that rolls in in the morning uh, from the West Coast, also on the East Coast if you're over at St. Andrews. And it kind of rolls in. You can go out of your flat, you're walking through the streets or whatever, and you're never dry. It's particularly in December in Glasgow. Um, you're never really dry. You're always just kind of moist everywhere. And you're, you're never truly warm. Your bones are just kind of chilled. And it's just kind of a way of things. And people would talk about the har, kind of this cloying fog that would be over you at all times, kind of dripping around you. And this persistence of the har is kind of what I think about fear in our culture today. It's kind of everywhere. It kind of is all over you. Uh, Howard Thurman in his chapter on fear in the book I just referenced talks about that it's like a climate that closes in. Uh, It's nowhere in particular, but it's still everywhere at the same time. So where does this horror come from, this fog that kind of rolls in on us? So let's go back to Genesis 3, as I mentioned, and talk about where this root of fear comes from. So in Genesis chapter 3, the man and the woman, the Ish and Ishah, as we talked about in Hebrew, they are in the garden and they are around um, together and they're tempted by the serpent to disobey God and to go to the tree of the uh, fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. And they turn their back on God's orders not to do that and they do it anyway. And in the midst of this, they realize they've broken relationship with God. They've become disobedient. They've taken things onto their own understanding and they ha- they're, they're afraid. And as they realizes fear, they um, scurry up into a tree, they clothe themselves with fig leaves, they are hiding from God. And then in Genesis 3, verse 9, God utters the first audible question uh, to humanity. First question. And I still, to this day, think it's the most important question that God asks in Scripture. And every other question that comes after it is based on this one, which is this, where are you? It's a very simple question. Where are you? And it's not a question of God's doubting their location. And we all know the old statement in in real estate that the three most important things are location, location, and of course, location. And for those of us who live in this area, we know fully well that the price of real estate is crazy um, and location does matter. But in Genesis 3, 9, when God asks where, it is not a question of location. It is a question of relationship, relationship, relationship. God wants to know where you are in relationship to him. And this isolation that the man and the woman experience in the garden removes them from that close proximity. And this is where the root of fear begins. Because as we hear in the text, they became afraid when they were separated from God. This question of where is a profound question for us to deal with in our root of fear. Four big relational losses of location happen in the garden at this point. And I, I want to talk through just briefly each of those four. I want you to think through, even in your hand, as you're thinking about fears, are some of these identifiable for you? First thing that the man and woman get isolated from is creation itself. They literally try to leave the ground and get up into the tree to get beyond it. They don't want to be necessarily bound up in the things of nature. 
Uh, We become fearful of climate. We become fearful of the ground. We've become fearful of what happens in forests. We become fearful of erupting volcanoes, right? These fears of creation are become part because we isolate ourselves from it and don't get to know the rhythms of it. And this is where our wilderness ministry here at Bethany is so important. How do we learn the rhythms of nature? So isolation from creation. Another fear is isolation from ourselves, Uh, By turning away from the things of God, we cease to know ourselves. We talk about ourselves as a distant thing. We don't know our own hearts. We don't even know what we're doing half the time. We become so used to the rhythms and push of the speed of our lives that we're not even talking about what's actually going on in our hearts. And that isolation creates a fear. What happens if I actually stop in this moment as opposed to the acceleration I've done and actually sit within myself? For some people, that's the most terrifying thing to realize stillness, quiet, solitude. What about each other? Another fear that the man and the woman experience is they start veiling themselves from each other and closing themselves off in relationship to one another. And they cease to see each other as people who are bound up in their lives, but as others, as different, as completely other than themselves. And of course, isolation from God, that we shut off that part of ourselves that seeks to ask where God is and who God is in our lives And we seek to talk about God more in doctrines and theologies and things to memorize and things to do right and wrong on a list as opposed to an intimate, deep, passionate relationship. Those isolations came at this point and took root in humanity. And we have been dealing as a people of God with this ever since. Are some of those fears in your hand right now? Where are those needing to be uprooted and transplanted this Advent? So how do we respond to fear when it kicks into gear? What are some responses? Well, in the first century, in the, in, when Jesus is born, there are contesting groups that are dealing with these fears in different ways. And they get kind of actualized in our New Testament scriptures in the attitudes of God-fearing Jews and others of the time in this way. The first response to fear that we see in, certainly in the scriptures, but we see in our own lives is imitation. And this is lived out by the Sadducees. The Sadducees represent in the New Testament this upper class. They are people who deal with the Roman occupation quite well because they nuzzle up to power. Uh, they have gotten prestige. They have gotten places of employment. Uh, they get to direct the worship of the temple. They get a monopoly of temple practices and are doing quite well monetarily and culturally because of it. Now, anything that would disturb that would take them down in their cultural value. It would take them down in their sense of status. And so the Sadducees dealt with their fear of losing things by constantly chasing after where power was going in the culture. What brand of clothing are they wearing? What car are they driving? What music are they listening to? What's the really cool university that I should be getting early acceptance to this December, right? These are the questions that constantly get pushed and get challenged in people. And we see this all the time this chasing after what's going to get me the cultural value, the economic certainty, what's going to be the big payday for the right company, the right brand of clothing that I wear, as opposed to following maybe where God has us go. This imitation of the cultural power systems was certainly in in Jesus's day as well. Another response to fear is also contempt. And this was the attitude of the Pharisees. This idea that I'm not getting power. I'm not getting my voice heard. I'm not getting seen. So I will silently, or maybe sometimes not so silently, just be in contempt of other people. This is the, what I call the toxic conversations around the table, where I constantly am talking about all the things I hate 
as opposed to what I really like. Oh, that movie was horrible. Oh, those people are horrible. Oh, you can't believe that things are happening. Oh, those people are awful. Those people over there. And it goes on and on and on and on. This deep sense of contempt for other people who haven't read what you've read, who haven't seen what you've seen, who haven't been a part of what you've seen. And this kind of rigid sense of contempt seeps into things and sours things in very profound ways. I love this story. One of the one of the people I have an opportunity to teach um, is, is Sister Joe Hobday, who's a um, she was raised as a, a Southern Baptist, but she's um, Iroquois uh, from her, from her mother's side, a Seneca elder in the, in, in the Native American tradition, and she's also a Franciscan nun. And uh, she died in 2009, and she tells this story of growing up in the Southwest, and her mother took her to a cafe, one of these old-fashioned diners that had formica tables and kind of chunky coffee cups to get your coffee in. Um, and her mother took her and sat her down in the booth and ordered for her a milk and then got coffee for herself. And the waitress brought milk uh, for Joe, brought, put it at her table, but her mother's coffee never came. And, and Joe asked her mother, said, you know, she's forgotten your coffee. I need to go say something to her. Uh, and the waitress just kind of stood at the check register and just kind of looked at them both and kind of shook her head and just kind of stared at them. And her mother reminded her that this cafe, they probably didn't have a lot of Native Americans who came and probably didn't recognize or didn't want to serve them, but said, just don't get angry about it. It's just one of those places, her mother told her. It's just one of those places. And I don't think my coffee's coming. Finish your milk and let's go. The mother got up to go to the cash register to pay for the milk. Um, and while she got up, Joe took the glass of milk that half of it she hadn't drank. She turned around and she started pouring it across the bench, pouring it on the floor, pouring it around, and then just put the glass upside down on the table and walked over to meet her mother because she was so angry about the way her mother had been treated, just poured it out. Her mother didn't say anything, paid for it. They walked out. She turned to her and said, well, now, Joe, you've proven yourself to be just as stupid as they are. Um, And her mother's response is this, and I'll just put this up on the board, but also just hear this out. My mother's response taught me this. Even when you feel you are justified, don't respond in kind when violence has been done to you. She was saying that there are other ways to respond. It isn't always eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Vengeance is not the way. And since then, I've experienced discrimination many times. This is Sister Joe, as a Native American, as a woman, as a woman in the church. I have tried on every occasion to remember my mother's lesson. She was calling me to a different kind of response, a peaceful, nonviolent one. It's a response, by the way, that is at the heart of the life and teaching of Jesus. And what she was getting at is this lifelong lesson that she learned, which is spilling milk is going to do nothing but turning the world sour. Spilling milk is just going to turn the world sour. An angry and vengeful heart is just going to pour sourness on everything. And, and, and what Sister Joe is teaching us is to keep milk where it's supposed to be, sweet, in the glass, where it should be savored, not poured out souring the world that we're in. And this is what contempt does. Toxic conversation, toxic ways that we kind of deal with our fears and our pain as opposed to holding on to it and treating it as the sweetness that God calls us to. Another way that we deal with fears in the world is violence. And we see this in the zealots of Jesus's time where the forces of Rome are building up and kind of keeping people submitted under power and violence. Zealots were reacting in like kind, you know, literally burning things down, acting out in in actual taking up of arms and showing of power. 
we're being oppressed, so we're going to take it to them. And we see this over and over and over again in our news, in our city, where people reach the boiling point. For some very good reasons, that rage is there, but that violence has never been the way to move forward in, in our love of Jesus. So what is the way forward? Where do we find imitation in our lives where we're constantly chasing after power in the culture? We're trying to be like that so we can hold on to maybe a little bit of what we have, like the Sadducees. What are the ways that we maybe pour out contempt and souring the world around us, like we see in the Pharisees? What are ways maybe that we have chosen violence, that outburst, that blasting of systems because we've had enough, like the zealots? Well, let's turn again and talk about the fear of the Lord then, the hope of fear. In Isaiah 41, we hear these words. Still my people, says the Lord, broken and scattered though you are, you remain my first chosen. Jacob, Abraham, my friend, I have gathered your fragments together from the ends of the wide earth and I say to you, fear not, I am with you. Be not dismayed for I am your God, I will strengthen you. I will help you and uphold you in my right, by my, but in the right of my righteousness. Isaiah knew that this was important, that the people of God would be afraid. And anybody who tells you any different is selling you something. <laughs> There's a lot of things to be afraid about in our lives. It's real. Suffering's real. Anxiety is real. Despair is real. Disappointment is real. Loss of love is real. Grief is real. It's real. And we see, though, how that fear, though, takes those real things and becomes a root to bear really odd fruit in Genesis 3, where the people of God choose isolation and control as a way of dealing with that, as opposed to turning it over to the Lord. At the heart of fears is always an assessment of power, pure and simple. In the New Testament, when we hear the word fear, oftentimes the Greek is, is from phobos, which is our word for phobia. Uh, now, so whether our phobias are about elevators, darkened rooms, spiders, um, fears in our lives, no matter whether they're imagined or real, all fear comes down to an assessment of power. Do we feel we're in control or not? And God wants us to get real with that question. And the fear of the Lord, as we're going to see, is about putting our real fears in the reality of God's real power. How do we put the context of our fears into God's context? For six summers, I worked as a camp counselor um, at a Boy Scout camp over on Hood Canal. Uh, it's, camp was called uh, Camp Parsons. Maybe some of you who have camping backgrounds may know this camp. Uh, beautiful piece of property, mile of beachfront property out there. And I spent the summers as a lifeguard trying to help 11-year-olds uh, to learn swimming so they could be, do the canoes, do the sailboats and things like that. And getting an 11-year-old who's maybe 50 pounds wet into Hood Canal. I mean, we're talking Puget Sound, temperature water, not an easy job, all right? And so at nine o'clock in the morning, these young scouts would come down to the beach and they would get into the water painfully uh, to pass a swim test, sometimes on rainy days, cold Northwest days, just so they could get to use the boats. So one week I had this young scout who was not afraid of swimming. He was afraid of the freezing cold. Um, he would come down wrapped in this big, huge blanket, like this walking, um, little walking turnip. And he'd come down and he'd kind of get ready. And as soon as it was time, he'd flick it off and he'd run in and he would just shake all his bones rattling together. Um, 
The week went on, and by Wednesday, he had passed his test. It was a lot of coaxing, a lot of panic, a lot of flailing of limbs. Uh, but by Wednesday, he passed the swim test. And he came on shore, he completed his test, and he threw the blanket over him. And I walked up to him, and I said, see, it wasn't so bad. And he looked at me, and he just kind of had this, like, two eyes poking out of this, this blanket. And he said, yes, it was. <laughs> but canoeing is better. Yes, it was, but canoeing is better. And this is the reality of our lives is we don't need people to tell us the lie, which is, well, it's not really that cold in Puget Sound. (laughs) It's really cold. Life is hard. If you've gone through a divorce, it's hard. If you've had cancer, it's hard. If you haven't got accepted into the program at the university you've been trying to, it is really hard. If you've lost your job, it is hard. If you've sent out resume after resume and people aren't seeing you for who you are and your skills, it is really hard. And God knows it. And God knows it. And as we sit here today, we also say, yes, it is hard. But you know what? God is great. Not to diminish the fears, but to put it in a context of where God is and how we live into it. And this is what the fear not of God is about and what the fear of the Lord actually means. One theologian I really leaned into in his, in his work on this area in the scripture is uh, Jason Fout. And he, and he writes it this way, and I'm going to put it up here for you. that The fear of God is not a hiatus uh, of human agency, but it's properly central to it. Fearing God does not equate to fearlessness of things in general. It's quite the opposite. Fearing God relativizes all our other fears. In other words, it puts it in context. To fear God and not fear others means placing all of one's hopes, trust, status, identity, indeed one's very life in God. So how do we find hope in the fear of the Lord in Advent? Let's get to some things we can do together this week to get ready for Advent. Well, the scriptures point us to a formula all the way back in Genesis, all the way through the New Testament that I think is important for how we understand what the fear of the Lord actually is. How do we put our fear in the context of God? Well, it's a simple math problem really to begin with that we can take on board, which is this, vulnerability plus worship equals fear of the Lord. Vulnerability plus worship equals fear of the Lord. My former colleague, Daniel Costello, who now teaches at at Duke, uh, has done a lot of work on this area of vulnerability in relation to worship. And he says this, both vulnerability and worship are two aspects of the biblical motif of fearing God that ought to be maintained in tandem. If there, if one is lost, the other one falls out of sorts. If we have, if we lose what it means to be vulnerable, then worshiping God is just going to be self-serving. We have to be open. We have to put ourselves before God. We have to be open to who God is. But without the proper object of our worship, if we're just being vulnerable, then all we're doing is we're just constantly throwing ourselves into social media, trying to get likes. We're not actually allowing ourselves to be put in the greater context of who God is. Vulnerability has to be for the sake of the Lord, for what God wants to do in us. We have to be ready for the change that that's going to bring. Nowhere in scripture or in the witness of those walking with the Lord, is there a call to deny fear? Fear is real and we see it. To hide behind fear in a fig leaf, by the way, is beyond being a questionable fashion choice. Um, it's a literal and figurative dead end. We need to be real with God with our fears. We need to name it. We need to open our hands and say, what is that that is holding me back from being in relationship with the Lord? 
This can be this, the same thing can be said if we're trying to imitate the culture as opposed to standing up to the fears we see and naming them. Same can be said if we're trying to pour out contempt and sour the world as opposed to managing our brokenness and finding a new way to be made new in God. Same can be said for the path of violence where destruction and fire become the only solution as opposed to building reconciliation and forgiveness as the pathway in our lives. So this Advent season, I'd like to challenge us in this week, and this is something to take on this week as we approach Christmas, is what I call Advent readiness. How do we get Advent ready to take these things on with our fears? Well, three things for Advent readiness, I think could be practiced today and practiced this week. And I challenge you to do them. First, risk. Approaching the new birth of Jesus is to approach it with risk. That is that our hunger for meaning has got to be stronger than the fear of being wrong. We have to learn to risk what we're going to find. And it may not be what we want. There have been so many times in my life where I've chosen to love and I've been disappointed, where I've sought after companionship and I've been let down. There have been times in my family where brokenness has really been difficult to deal with. And then the temptation is just stopping to risk altogether. Maybe we've tried for social justice and it hasn't gone anywhere. But this season, we're called to risk again, to risk again, and to risk again. Secondly, openness, that we need to remember to remain open to the unknowable, the unverifiable, the mysterious, the intuited, the spiritual, and understand that the sources that God may come to us may not be like we see, may not even be able to be understood. And while the world is not yet rightly ordered, we can still be hopeful and be open to what God wants to bring. And third, and I think this is really important in Advent for you to lean into and for myself to lean into as we journey towards the manger, which is this. We need to experience the love of companions. Who are your friends for the journey? Who in your community group are you been sharing your fears with? Who have you been sharing these brokenness with? Who are the people in your life that here at Bethany or other places that you're sharing what's in your heart? Sharing our risks relate to share pleasures. We got to find those souls for the journey of faith and refuse any attempts to try to find meaning that can be obtained alone or in isolation. Advent is a season to build on hope, on faith and love as we face the days ahead together. One example I want you to leave you with as we turn now to worship and as um, as I call the band to come up is one of my exemplars during Advent. uh, was on December 1st, 1955, uh, Rosa Parks, who many of you know, while being asked to move from her seat, was asked to get up and move to the back of that Montgomery bus that many of us have heard in school, many of us heard so many times, it's become almost cliche as opposed to being saintly and powerful. But you have to remember that Rosa Parks, as a person of faith, understood the fear of the Lord. She understood what vulnerability is. She understood what worshiping the Lord was about. She understood what it was to risk. She understood what it meant to be open. And she understood what it meant not to imitate the culture, not to pour sourness on it, and certainly, certainly not to choose violence when she's not being seen. Rosa Parks got up and sat sat in her seat, would not get up from her seat, and changed the way we think about what the world is about. Martin Luther King described this in this way. One can never understand the action of Mrs. Rosa Parks until one realizes that eventually the cup of endurance runs over and the, peop- and the human personality cries out, I can't take it any longer. Mrs. Parks' refusal to move back 
was her intrepid and courageous affirmation to the world that she had had enough. There was a time when people get tired of being trampled over by the iron feet of oppression. There comes a time, my friends, when people get tired of being plunged across the abyss of humiliation, when they experience the bleakness of nagging despair. There comes a time when people get tired of being pushed out of the glittering sunlight of July and are left standing in the piercing chill of an Alpine November. If we are wrong, and if Mrs. Rosa Parks was wrong, God Almighty is wrong. If we were wrong in protesting this racial injustice in Montgomery, Jesus of Nazareth was merely a utopian dreamer who never came down to earth. Grounded in the inspiration of Rosa Parks, the willingness to be part of God's plan and to fear the Lord more than fearing her own fears, she stayed seated. One year after Rosa Parks took her seat on that bus, December 21st, 1956, still during Advent, the U.S. Supreme Court declared bus segregation unconstitutional. And on that day, on the 21st of December, Martin Luther King and some other white pastors in Montgomery got on a bus together and took a bus ride. In the simple act of Advent fearlessness, the world got changed. What are you holding in your hand this Advent season? What fears are keeping you from following the simple yet prophetic path of journeying towards the manger this week? So as we turn to worship and we sing about God with us, think and pray through what fears you need to lay behind, what imitations, what contempt, and what violence are keeping you from facing the manger this Christmas.